Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Sasha Wolf. Hello. Alan Wyma. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we're going to be talking about transitioning and onboarding into Elixir. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. And Alan, you brought up this topic. I'm a little curious before we get too far down the rabbit trail. Was there something that prompted you to bring this up? I was just thinking not all, of course, we're, this is an Elixir show, but like, let's not forget that what we do is also related to other types of programming languages. And I think that there's more and more people coming into programming every day. And it's good to kind of kind of reach back to topics that are related to them. That's really what came up to me. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, I mean, we started the show, what, like three years ago? And I've been on it for a good chunk of the time. I I did take a break for a while because Mark and some of those other guys were running it. And then I came back and I've been talking to you guys about Elixir, but I really don't write Elixir. I I haven't spent a ton of time doing it. I've played with it, but I haven't haven't gone deep on it. But lately, for a couple of reasons, and I I don't know if I want to go into all of them, I've been looking at Elixir as a possible uh, transition for my own career. So just to give people a little bit of context, I work currently for a large financial firm that I guarantee you most people have heard of in the U.S. I've been, I've been playing a little bit coy with where I work just because I got uh, social media canceled once and I don't necessarily want them bothering my employer to get me fired. But anyway, so I've been working for this company for a while, writing Ruby for almost a year, actually. And I've been doing Rails since like 2005. And anyway... I'm I'm kind of curious to see what's on the other side of the fence, if that makes sense, right? And it's it's interesting too because I've had a lot of people talking to me about like JavaScript and Express, and I'm just I'm not that interested in it. But it seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the Elixir community. It seems like it's a bit more stable than it was a few years back, and I'm kind of curious to see what it does. I also remember though. Uh, talking to a few friends who had transitioned some stuff over to Elixir or Erlang, and they were getting like single digit or double digit uh, millisecond responses out of their apps, right? And stuff like that. And so I'm just sitting there going, wow, that's awesome. And then the other thing is, is just the multi-process parallelized nature of things these days. And the fact that everything seems to have multiple cores in it. And I'm sorry, but Ruby just doesn't take advantage of that well. It, I mean, it's fast enough most of the time, right? So I'm not going to poo-poo on it and say you shouldn't use it because it'll work for it'll work for you, right? If you want to build an app, Rails gets a lot of crap out of your way. You can get stuff done fast. But it looks like Phoenix has a lot of that same appeal, maybe for some different reasons, right? Because it works off of plugs and stuff like that. But anyway, so I've been I've been looking at it and I've been trying to decide if I want to make this transition. And so I'm kind of curious 
heading in, A, what do I need to be learning? You know, what am I going to run into as I start saying, okay, if I make Elixir my my thing instead of Rails, maybe Elixir Phoenix. I don't know if it'd be Elixir Phoenix or Elixir and something else. But let's say I make Elixir and Phoenix my thing. What's going to feel natural to me and what's not? And then, yeah, once I start getting onboarded, we can also speak from the other end. You know, let's say they start onboarding somebody like me or they start onboarding somebody who is newer to programming than I am, right? Because I've been doing this for what, 16, 17 years, what what do we need to be doing in order to help people get onboarded if we're bringing them on and they're maybe a little less experienced talking about Elixir and a little fresher to this? So so let's start with, hey, what, what do I need to be doing right now in order to make this transition as natural as possible and make me more hireable in that market? If you've asked me, you are already probably in a pretty good position, Charles, just you personally, because I mean, you're doing this show, you, you probably absorbed a bit of knowledge already yeah. by osmosis. But I mean, if you're, in general speaking, in a position where you maybe have done Ruby on Rails for the last, last 15 years and now are interested in that, which is like pretty cool, to be honest, because I've, I've only started working in this industry like 10 years ago. So we have more work experience <laughs> than I even have programmed in my, my whole life. But like to, to, to get back, I... I feel like Elixir has like a pretty decent onboarding story if you talk about the basics. Like um, a lot of people recommend the website because the website actually has a guide to get started. And that's fairly decent like to, to get running and like have a, maybe a first application on your laptop running and like doing some Phoenix stuff because Phoenix then again mm-hmm. also has a pretty decent guides not not unlike rails to be honest because like the, the, the guides from rails have very rightfully so been mentioned as something which really helps people in in hitting the ground running and phoenix has a very very similar story and i mean it learns it learned a lot from rails that does some stuff differently but also a lot of things very similarly and um, the nice thing about that whole story is actually that you can build like a functional web app with elixir and phoenix mm-hmm. and don't have to like get deal with like all these somewhat weird beam stuff with like otp and so on and so forth with weird stuff um so the onboarding story until that point is i feel pretty good well laid out by the community now because i mean mm-hmm. they have the website you have the phoenix docs you have like some books on that if that's more your thing you have probing phoenix you have elixir in action all of these things to like help you with these first steps and like depending on, on your type of person it might be nicer to just look on the website and dabble with it or maybe it's nicer for you to like read this book like right get elixir in action or programming phoenix and do it by, by going through that and so i my, my impression was always also with onboarding colleagues and, and people to elixir is that this already at least helps in doing the first steps in the ecosystem. The question mm-hmm. is kind of what comes afterwards. What do you want to do? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so for me, I, I have some long-term plans for the podcast network. As far as programming goes, I mean, there are... So the tooling for podcasting is getting better, but it in a lot of ways, it's still just not quite what I want or need. You know, I kind of make do with what's out there, but I don't. I don't love a lot of the stuff that's out there. And so I'm kind of tempted to build out some of that stuff. And when it comes to, I don't know, like an admin panel or something to manage your podcast, building it in Rails or Phoenix or whatever, it doesn't seem to matter a ton. But then I look at doing something like an analytics engine or something like that, right? Where it's it's going to track system downloads and things like that. And it's, it might see a, a whole bunch of requests all at once and stuff like that. 
it just seems like Elixir is going to stand up to that weight better than a Rails app is. And in a lot of ways, so the the kind of the the state of the art for podcasting is is that you actually just munge the the logs out of out of like Apache or Nginx, right? And so it serves up the file and then you go look at the log and see if it downloaded the whole thing. And I could do something like that too. And maybe that would be more efficient, but I don't know. I mean, I just, the the way that I've kind of envisioned it is, is that it, you know, it, it does the tracking the other way. So, um, you know, if, if there's like a thin Elixir layer between serving the file and it just, you know, tracks it that way. It seems like that might work better. I'm still exploring that. But so so that's kind of the long-term direction that I'm looking at is, hey, you know, it looks like there are certain areas within podcasting that would it, it would make a ton of sense to have it be performant. There are certain things that have a workflow feel to them where it'd be like you spin up a, a process that kicks off another process that does part of the work that, you know, and so you have specialized jobs and it seems like elixir lends itself to that and so anyway so kind of the architecture of some of the work that i'm looking at having the program do lends itself more naturally to an elixir type thought process and so that that's kind of the direction that i'm looking at but also it seems like and i don't want to go too much into this just because it's kind of internal work stuff but it seems like the kinds of jobs that are doing the interesting kind of work that i want to do these days are not happening so much in Rails. Rails anymore has become kind of this maintain this large legacy app and help us kind of roll it into the next phase of what we're doing. And I've always enjoyed sort of the, the hey, we're going to go and we're going to cowboy our way into, and not, not without discipline, but we're going to cowboy our way into the next phase of things because we're still inventing stuff. And that's where I want to live. And so anyway, that that's a lot of the, the stuff that I'm kind of thinking about if you're asking about what direction I'm going to head in with things. So, yeah, I can really understand like working on, on more interesting and challenging problems at the end of the day. Right. And maintaining something is some well paid probably and like it's a safe job, but it's not really something which like tickles your brain at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Now that well, what's funny is, is at work, we're actually we're actually working on transitioning a project from Groovy on Grails to Ruby on Rails. And so it's it's somewhat greenfield. But the problem is, is I'm in such a large organization that the the wheels move real slow for anything. Mm. And that's that's kind of where I'm stuck right now. So okay, one, one thing that's another issue to deal with <laughs> with wheels moving slowly in big orgs. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that I mean if you want to do more interesting things, big companies probably don't have a lot. It's no. kind of more specialized. They're just kind of there, like you said, to kind of keep the stuff grinding. Well, some way. of them are good enough to have like an entrepreneur in residence and they have they have some leeway that's gonna it's like, hey, we're gonna go we're gonna go invent this and it's gonna it's gonna be all fast and loose. Yeah, eventually they come and they sit on it, right? But for a while there you can kind of go and, and figure stuff out. I mean, I, I like going out and breaking stuff and figuring out what it's supposed to do. The other thing is is that boy, this is going to be a gripe fest about my current job. So I'm going to say this, but it's, and it's going to sound like I'm complaining about my coworkers, but I'm not. I work with, so on my team, there are three of us and the terrific guys. I, I really like working with them. I, I really like the way that sometimes they challenge the way I think. The issue for me is that the way that I'm put together is that pairing all day just sucks the life out of me. And it doesn't matter how good the people I work with are, 
it just it wears me out. And so for me to manage my energy, I kind of have to go lone wolf. And it's not it's not like lone wolf is in not ever collaborating with anybody. But it is in the sense that if you want me to pair with somebody for a couple hours today and a couple hours tomorrow, that's totally fine. But if it's going to be all day and it's going to be this highly collaborative thing, it's just it's not going to work because at the end of the day, it's just going to it's going to completely wear me out. So anyway, so the mob programming is also (laughs) an issue for me. I told my boss yesterday because we have somebody from work that's moving on to another place and that leaves his team down to a team of one. And I told my boss, I was like, that sounds really nice. I was like, I just want to be told this is what we want. This is when we want it. We're going to pay you till it's done. Go do it. And then I just show up with the solution. That's what I want. So anyway. Sure, for like a Lixir specifically help you with that. But I'm... No, it's, that's an organizational <laughs> thing. That's not an Elixir thing. <laughs> that was actually in my mind too. I was like, wait a minute, what's the relation to, to Elixir? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So anyway, these are all the things I'm thinking about. But but yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I'm hearing is is that I'm probably well served to go build some app in Elixir. Yeah. One thing I noticed while you mentioned, like especially when you talked about this podcast idea, is like when you go down this road I mentioned earlier of like going to a website, maybe picking up a book, doing some play app, something in Phoenix. Then like yes, like you have something working at the end of the day, but arguably that will probably not showcase the most interesting things of elixir which again is probably like what it inherits from erlang and otp and like all this process Mm -hmm. stuff i mean you have a little bit of that in phoenix because each request in phoenix is actually running in its own process and that's already cool because then you can maybe play around with it and like say okay i force a crash in that but that shouldn't affect anything over there and that actually works like but that's how it how it works in phoenix right like if it crashes in one request it doesn't affect any other uh, request which is nice i mean that's like more really scratching on the surface of like what, what the platform is like really really good at and like getting and like about what you mentioned earlier with like this process uh, with this podcast processing and stuff and spinning off processes to do well concurrently that then really goes into into the nitty-gritty parts of like what otp brings to the table and i'm not sure like to be honest what the best onboarding exp- like way there is i mean there are again some books um, but i'm like i wouldn't like from the top of my head be able to say okay do this and and then you understand otp quite quite compared uh, like very different from like this these basic first steps mm-hmm. i'm not sure what the best resource is to then dive deeper into the ecosystem and like i guess that relates to what what you said ellen before the show right that, that you had a bit of difficulty then with like understanding these things or did i misunderstand you there ellen same here i didn't know it was me yeah yeah you mentioned no. before the show that you had some issues then after like your, your first experience with elixir like to rocking OTP and stuff. So yeah, well, like, let's let's kind of do then. But yeah, let's let's roll back, right? So you and I had different experiences when we learned this, right? You're you're in a much better situation than me, right? You could lean on some more experienced developers. For the most part, I've been a team of one for most of my tech career, so I had to pick up things by myself. But when you go from one sequential language to another, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Like if you're going from Python to Ruby. Yeah, there's some differences, but overall, I mean, yeah. okay, you say yeah. lender the function call instead of saying dot size, right? But it's still I, about the same thing. 
I always compare yeah. it with like riding a bicycle, like it's different bicycles, right? Like there's not much new to learn. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah, do their OOP a little different here than there. You know, the inheritance works different, but for the most part, it's the same idea. But like, if, let's say like, let's stick with the vehicle analogy, right? You're going from a automatic to a manual transmission. When do I hit the clutch? Make sure I don't ride it. You know, I don't ride the clutch. Make sure I know how to shift up and down gears. When I stop at the stoplight, I should start back from zero or one and move up. Again, I'm just guessing. Because I really I want to make a grinding this. noise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the grinding, right? That happens because you just don't understand that everything's a process and that you have immutable data and all these other little things that pop out of nowhere. Right. Uh, what I loved best was uh, Johnny Wynn when he came on and he was like, Elixir is de- deceptively like Ruby. You look at it, and that's my first thought, and that was something that Chuck mentioned was like, hey, I, I know Ruby, and I, this stuff looks so similar, I can probably pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I, in no way am I trying to say anything bad about that. That, I think, is most people's opinions. But when you want to get deep down and get like understand about how supervision, trapping exits, all these kind of like things that you really need to understand, because like I'm naming things, but supervisors already re- already remove most of that kind of details for you right you don't have to know about trapping mm-hmm. exits and how supervisors work but that's what they do if i remember correctly they yeah, trap exits yeah. and then just restart the process but going through books and deep diving into it you start to figure out okay this is how it actually works and this is the primitives right taking these primitives making them together you get something right you take two O and then you have water right you, you have to take these mm-hmm. small things put them together you get something different and how did so you that's know like learning this? How, how did you yeah know, it was your story there well, the nice part, like you said before, is that you can get really far, which is working with Phoenix, right? Most of our stuff, like I never really wanted to get into web. It just kind of happened, right? That's just the way I was, I came into the career. And so working with web is pretty straightforward. Like Phoenix abstracts all of the complications of OTP with just, you know, having a supervision tree. Like I never really have to go into that area for the most part, right? You just take data in, you maybe you have to massage it a bit, you save it. Uh, and then you also have to retrieve it later on, right? The simple CRUD app in Phoenix is dead straightforward. If you came from Rails, especially when I joined, which was, I think, 1.3 or something for Phoenix, they all they had a web folder, right? It was it was basically cut copy paste with uh, Rails. It was very yeah. straightforward, right? There's even models, right? Yeah. Uh, which I forgot how the heck that even worked. Somehow they made that stuff kind of work. But yeah, and then like things change, and now it's kind of its own flavor. It's you can see the history, but but anyways. Making a Phoenix app, if you know Rails, I think is still relatively straightforward. But like adding like services and other pieces within your app is definitely going to be the part where things get more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm working on things where I have to process a lot of data at once, like 100 something XML files at one time. And so, of course, you don't want to do that sequentially. So I spin up a process for every single one and I have to catch it and, and all this kind of stuff and things break and and. I don't know how to fix it. So I had to go on there and Google search and other things I also did was read the Elixir in Action book. And then and that was still not enough for me. So I think I mentioned this before, but I started reading Francis, Francisco's book, right? Francisco or mm-hmm. Francesco? I forgot now. Francesco, I think, Francesco. right? Francesco. Yeah. Francesco's book. I mean, it's just, if you want to dig deeper into OTP, I don't think there's any better way to do it than looking at Erlang books because they did it best. I mean, yeah. Elixir is kind of putting some, I guess you could say like a lipstick on a peg <laughs> to a certain analogy, right? It makes it, it makes things. I mean, it's not like taking something ugly and making it look good, but it's just taking something that is useful and good, but making it easier to use, right? Use Gen Server is much easier than building a Gen Server in Erlang. Mm-hmm. Making a Gen Server in Erlang is like literally was like a hundred lines of copy and paste code you have to do before you get anything specific. If you guys know about this, right. yeah, a lot of boilerplate, right? Yeah, that use Gen Server is like that's the boilerplate. 
for the most yeah, part. Yeah. Like when you said Francesca's book, are you talking about Erlang programming or which book are you are you referring to? Uh, I think it's building it's designing for systems. scalability. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that should be that one. Designing for scalability with Erlang slash OTP. So that that's also a book from him. There's also a book called Erlang Programming. I just wanted to know like which one you mean. Yeah, this is the one. So because I think this book, I mean, I learned how to do tracing from here. I never knew how to do it before, and I actually used it quite a bit. I've actually not read that one, so maybe. I think it's pretty good. You should you should go back and you should go and read it. I think it's a pretty good book. Yeah, but that's that's an interesting thought now because like I mean that fits into what I said earlier that like you have this kind of nice onboarding story into the basics, right? Like learning Elixir, like the syntax, and of course you have these mistakes i've also have seen people new to the language make like hey no i did map put but like the data didn't change and like yeah you have to reassign it to a variable because it's immutable it returns the changed data and the same like okay now i have a string i want to call like trim on it and then like yeah you don't do dot trim you like you do string dot trim and then give it the string and all these kind of things which is like basically like switch i mean you, you have the vehicle ex- but so like switching from a bicycle to a car and then you sit in the car like wait I, I know how to ride a bicycle how does this work right so but then like to learn the, the more nitty gritty stuff it probably makes sense to look into the Erlang community because most of that interesting concurrency stuff comes from Erlang and comes from OTP so Elixir inherits all of that and but maybe something where the community could even maybe like help with making the transition a bit easier of like, okay, now you like mastered the basics and hey, there are these Erlang resources. And yes, they talk about Erlang, but they teach a lot of the fundamentals. And and mm. I, th- I mean, maybe that these kind of resource exists out there, but I'm not aware of it. So there's certainly like a, there's a, certainly a puzzle piece missing here to like nudge people a bit more into that direction. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting the way you're talking about it too, because when I got into Ruby, specifically i mean rails was kind of the gateway drug i guess for lack of a better way of putting it right (laughs) so i got i got in because we needed some stuff built the company that i was working for was using rails for their web stuff so you know we picked it up when we used it and i really 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 liked it there were there were a lot of things that really kind of went my way with it and then what happened was as i got deeper into it and I was like, okay, now how do I do this, right? That's a little bit outside of the kind of beaten track that Rails gives you. Then it was, okay, well, now I have to go dive into Ruby. And so I'd go learn some concept in Ruby and realize, A, Rails is taking advantage of that same thing. I just didn't realize it, right? I thought it was a Rails concept, it's a Ruby concept. And B, oh, this opens up all these other powerful options for me to build other features into my application. And it sounds like in a lot of ways, that's kind of what you're saying is going to happen as you dive into Elixir is that you'll start picking this stuff up. And initially, you'll start kind of building sort of the, I guess, how do I put it? Kind of the, I don't want to say default, but kind of the, the, the apps, the kinds of apps. Yeah, that the apps that follow, yeah, the kind of the, the well-beaten, well-trodden road for Elixir, and then you're going to start diving into this other stuff that comes out of the fact that it's built on the Erlang virtual machine, and you'll start figuring out, oh, I've got this other thing that powerfully solves these this class of problems. Yeah, yeah, that's it at the end of the day. And yeah, my impression is that there could be a bit more resource specifically from the Elixir community, like saying, okay, there is all this wisdom out there from the Erlang community. Like, let's make it accessible to you, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to dig into that. Because like, also the Erlang documentation is like, if you really 
if you know what you're looking for, that's probably kind of part of the problem. Like it's really, really helpful and explains a lot of these concepts very well. But unless you already know what you're looking for, it's really hard to discover this. And like right. I, I had the luxury of like learning Elixir in like a work environment. Like I joined as a new developer, as a new backend developer, not really having any familiarity with Elixir at that point. But I had a lot of colleagues which were very well knew a lot of things about Elixir and knew a lot about a lot of things about the early virtual machine so every time i was like wait how does this work like what's the gen server and like like what's the supervisor supervisor and like what's the supervision right. tree i could always go to these people and ask them and then they could point me to these resources so uh, i i basically sidestepped a lot of these issues maybe some other people have when they try to learn these completely on their own right Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, to be honest, I mean, that's where I picked up a lot of programming just early in my career, right? Is I got, well, I kind of forced my way into a position where I was, where I was learning how to code, picking up concepts here, picking up concepts there. But I was working in an environment where if I had a question, I just go ask another yeah, programmer. Yeah. And it's super powerful. And then, like, if you have an environment yeah. where it's okay, you can learn so much. Yep. And then from there, I mean, my first actual programming job where it was actually part of my job description instead of, hey, I'm picking this up because we have a problem to solve and I'm capable of doing this. It was the same deal, right? I was working with the same other programmer that was making a lot of the judgment calls pretty much all day, every day. And so, again, it was like, hey, we're going to do this. And yeah, we just pick up the concepts as we went. So, so let's move to onboarding then, because you've kind of talked a little bit about, hey, you know, I picked this up because I was working with people that already knew Elixir. So, you know, and it also sounds like just by virtue of the fact that I'm on this podcast and I have a lot of experience programming, people would assume that I can pick this stuff up. So I should be able to get hired. So what can I expect being onboarded and what should people expect to see when they're onboarding somebody at different experience levels? as they as they bring people on 
Yeah, of course, that depends on where you start, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot of questions right. around company culture. But in the perfect I world, I would probably hope to, to go down at least in a small way this route of like starting with something more simple, like more Phoenix, mm -hmm. maybe doing doing a bug fix in that area, and then slowly nudging into like these more intermediate topics around okay supervision but then i personally if i would have to onboard somebody i, I would do these <laughs> even if you wouldn't like a child's like in a pair programming session probably <laughs> mm -hmm. so like to, to, to no go, it's fine <laughs> to go i don't like, have a problem with pair programming i just it just wears me out to do it all day long yeah okay so. i understand but I, that's like how I would do it. Like I would take, yeah. like basically, okay, let's let's take this maybe task, which is a bit more intermediate, which requires us to do some OTP um, stuff and then do it together with like whoever I want to onboard. And then like, yeah, basically paying the pointer person probably like, okay, now you're hoping that the other person would ask questions and then pointing to these other resources. Hey, like maybe let's look at the documentation over there, right? Mm -hmm. Search for this to remove a lot of a friction. And the, the grinding, the grinding of the gears, uh, which otherwise would most likely happen. Right. But that's like probably the ideal onboarding scenario I, I would hope to see when, when people start. And also, I mean, my experience actually has been that people who have not that much experience with like other paradigms, like object-oriented programming, tend to pick up Elixir a little bit quicker. Because if you have a lot of experience with like a paradigm such as OOP, you come in and you, of course, you try to apply this thinking to this language because it has always served you well. But then like <laughs> this language will like will probably kind of bite your ass because like it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's a functional programming language at the end of the day. Like a lot of the same principles don't apply here. Funnily, some of the principles do apply if you look at processes and like how they capsule and caps uh, and capsule state and stuff. But like you don't get to that right away. So the very the very first steps tend to be a bit rough for people who have not really looked beyond the the the, the horizon of like OOP. Because they mm -hmm. try, try to come in, they know their tools, and they try to use a hammer to to put a get a screw into the wall, and that doesn't work well. That makes sense. So yeah, I was just thinking right. I'm going to transition jobs, and you guys are going to hear me go, "Ow, my ass!" <laughs> 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 you wanted to say something, Adam? Yeah, sorry. I was just thinking. I actually, I tried one thing that still eludes me to this day. Maybe Sasha, you have some input on this one, but I, I think I saw Fred talking about this. But like, what's the point of having a process dictionary? I actually have used that for tracing, like tracing. Right? Yeah, but is like, that actually the proper use of it, though? That's my it, question. It's like basically, it's like Elixir is in the Beams version of global state, and like sometimes that is useful. Like I said, we we did use that in like a web request sense. We're like, okay, we started a trace for a web request, and then we put the trace ID in the process dictionary and fetched it from there to not having to pass it down. So yeah, it's basically it's basically global state. I mean, we all know that global state is the devil's work <laughs> because it's yeah, <laughs> going to bite you at some point. But sometimes it is useful. So I tend to think of the process dictionary as global state. I and mean, for everybody who's not familiar with it, there's basically a function like 
uh, where you can say we put a key value storage which is like a scoped to the process and you can access it from everywhere without having to drag through state how you usually have to do it in, in a functional programming language so yeah but that's but it, i have apart from this one specific scenario i have not used it yeah i was just thinking kind of reminds me of like quarks you know within python where you just pass all this whatever the heck you want those uh key name arguments. It's like a context of stuff you just keep passing around, but this one's not being explicitly passed. I think the only thing that I can think of that it's actually used for is related to the logger, right? The yeah. logger, I think, stores some state in there. Yeah, like when you, for example, you can, you can disable the logger on a per-process statement, that probably also relies on the process dictionary. Yeah, like I guess if you would have to dig to distill it down to the basic level, is any kind of like state you would like to retain it access in other places, which is not really strictly related to the application at hand, right? So like not really to the business at hand. So for example, if you have like an e-commerce site, right, like to to a per purchase or something, that that should be passed down explicitly. But everything which is like around that, like tracing, like monitoring, like logging, where you might want to access state at a later point, and it, don't want to what, really want to pollute your business logic with that because it feels kind of like polluting it otherwise, like putting this stuff in there, which doesn't really have to do anything with like e-commerce, but still you need it. And in these cases, uh, the process dictionary is at least uh, something you might want to look at. The question, like, sorry, this has come to my mind now is how about persistent storage? Or is it persistent term storage, right? Is that the one that we're... Persistent term. It's like, yeah, is that the right one? Yeah, that's, like that's, that's kind that's, of a that's the global global state, right? Yeah, that's global global state. Um, we 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 have used that global uh, global. Yeah, but like that's a persistent like what persistent term basically does. It's a key value storage again, but it's optimized for reading. So like actually writing something into persistent term is fairly slow. I think it's O of n, so runtime complexity. Oh wow. Um, but like reading is O O O one. Um, so it is something if you have any kind of data you want to access globally even for multiple processes, um, and you very, very, very rarely write to it, then persistent term is useful. I have used it like once where we basically loaded a disk from a file from disk on startup. Like we didn't want to, and we, which contained some configuration stuff. And we didn't want to load that file every time for every request, right? So we, we basically loaded that on startup once and put it into persistent term and then read everything from there. When is like, Chuck, after hearing about like these two things, right? Process dictionary and persistent storage. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you can know when you want to use that and coming from your background as of, as of right now? Well, of course, Generally, after we explained yeah. it, but Good I mean, point. after we explained yeah. it to you, maybe you, you have some kind of idea, but there's yeah, a lot of really weirdness it, yeah. to it. <laughs> there's a lot of little weirdness to it, right? And so yeah. you may ask yeah. yeah. yourself, why would I ever want to use this process dictionary stuff? What, 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 why is it called a dictionary? What's the point of this thing? It's a bit of like this wisdom of the ancients, right? Like where, where you learn this <laughs> by, by, by doing it, by picking it up from other people telling you. But this, yeah, this is exactly the kind of knowledge I meant earlier. Like how, how do you pick this up? Like some of the online community has like maybe books and books might contain it. I, like I said, I haven't read the book you mentioned earlier. So maybe some of that is mentioned in there. But yeah, like that, that's the kind of stuff you learn when you get really familiar with a platform. And I think that's probably an issue of every platform out there. As, like, yes. As, also, Ruby has these weird corners. Like, with, like if you get into like metaprogramming with Ruby and like method missing and all this stuff, it's like that, that can become really crazy if you want to. But like, yeah, yeah. I was say, isn't there like a? I know there's a first, there's a second, there's a last for like uh, getting things out of a dictionary. But also, isn't there like a forty-two or something like that? In so, 
<laughs> so yeah, getting into corners, right? First, second, third, fourth. I can't remember how far the ordinal numbers go. And last, those are all part of active support, which is included in Rails by default. If you're not using Rails or you haven't included active support and you try dot first out of an array, it's going to go, I don't know what first is. <laughs> but there's also... So that, there's that, also that, and that's a gotcha that people run into. They get used to what's provided in Rails. And then when they're outside of Rails, then they can't figure out why all the nice stuff that is included in Rails doesn't work. Rails includes a whole bunch of convenience methods on strings, a whole bunch of other stuff. And yeah, it's okay. What? Well, I uh, expected this to work and it's not working. Well, you're not, you're not in a Rails app anymore. And so you don't have active support. <laughs> and so, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But there's also like a, a 42 method, which, uh, which is like also known as accessing the Reddit. It's like literally what's in the docs. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably like, it's a probably reference to like the Hitchhiker's Guide for the Universe, right? Like the 42 answer to the live universe and everything. Yeah. I, I love these little Easter eggs. Yep. But so. yeah, so like yeah, every language, every runtime, every platform has their like little secrets at the end of the day, and like these these little mm -hmm. tidbits of knowledge which are useful in certain scenarios. And I mean, of course, you could write a book with like all the weird things you can do in Erlang and all the weird things you can do in Ruby, but that feel, that that sounds like rather dull to read, to be honest. <laughs> and then you probably read it and it's like, oh, this is like so specific. I'm not sure I will remember it ever. So that's probably yeah. the kind of knowledge you will just have to acquire by, by doing it. And at the, at the end of the day, it's easier to acquire this if you work with people who are really familiar with these topics because mm -hmm. then they can point you towards it. Yep. Yeah, yeah so I will say, though, that some of the ways that the onboarding has worked in the past for me with technologies that I'm not as familiar with, uh, usually the front-end technologies anymore, is, yeah, you know, you either pair program on something for a little bit or you, you know, going back to our topic here, or yeah, you have somebody that's kind of the next, de next desk over. And then, you know, you can lean over and say, hey, how do I do this? And what's really funny, too, is that like, I'm so I'm kind of the resident Rails expert uh, at work, uh, just because I've been doing it forever. And so a couple of times, somebody's like, they go through and they like reinvent something, and they get they get like three quarters of the way through it. And then I'll I'll show up because I, I don't have like a I don't show up at the same time every day at work, just depending on what podcasts there are and things like that. And so I'll show up like an hour or two into them reinventing something and they'll be like, they're well, I've got this most of the way done. And I'm like, well, why don't you just use this library or why don't you just, you know, use this feature of the language that's already there? Right. And yeah, a lot of that is really handy when you have somebody around. And a lot of it, it really isn't that well documented. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Like my Rails and Ruby is kind of interesting because I did Elixir first. And then I started a company which had did the natural transition, which like first had Ruby stuff and Rails stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they added some Elixir stuff. And so I came into there and I like tried to pick up Rails and Ruby from this existing monolith, which was also like a bad case of monolith. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you try to pick up Rails from that perspective, it's like really weird because like the onboarding experience of Rails is really optimized around this. Hey, you have this new project you want to build, and like you go step by step and how you add features. But if you if you get into like an existing code base and try to figure out how something works, it's like 
what? Well, where is this function coming from? Like, well, 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 why does this yeah. work? Because there's a lot of magic on Rails, but if, if you go through the beaten path, like it is, explains all of that magic to you. But if you try to figure out why this magic is there without having this context, it's super confusing. And, and I, I still remember this one story where I like tried to figure out, I tried to debug this controller test, which was failing. And I tried to figure out like, why does it, inject this request object like why does this request object come from and at the end of the day i figured out okay like in the test helper it, it, uh, it was configured uh -huh. to say hey please infer the type of test from the path and <laughs> it took me like hours to figure this out because like it's implicit and like you can't figure yeah. it out from the file itself it's convention and, over configuration yeah, yeah yeah but if you're not if you're not familiar with convention it's like what <laughs> what's happening yeah. And um, yeah, the flip side of that is, is that there was this happened yesterday, I was working on a um, some code. And I changed some stuff. And one of the tests failed. And I was like, well, I, I'm sure I didn't change anything that would make that test fail because it was in a particular spot. And I ran it again, and again, and again, and it kept failing. So I was like, well, I'm just gonna go check it out. And I went and looked at it. And sure enough, what I changed broke that test. And I was like, and so I was complaining to the guy I was pairing with, I was like, I was like, nobody would have put this here, right? <laughs> no Rails developer would have put this here. They they put it in the wrong place. So you get used to the convention and you assume that everybody else is going to follow the convention. And yeah, anyway, it's it's really interesting how that all comes at you one way or the other, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Rails assuming the convention and then also the developer making assumptions because of the convention. Yeah, yeah. And like, I can see how, how that's useful, like to, to, to help you with writing code more quickly. But if you are not familiar with, with these conventions yep. and then try to read code, it's super confusing. It really is confusing. And like my gut, like that's actually my gut feeling is that that's something like at least Phoenix has learned from because a lot of things Phoenix does, like it generates a bunch of code for you. But then at the end of the day, this code is still part of your application. So for example, the endpoint module. Which contains a whole host of plugs for, for to like and decode body and to oh gosh, mm -hmm. all the other kind of stuff I can't remember right now, like setting a request ID and all of this stuff. So, but like all of everything Phoenix does basically is is like contained in these generated files. So if at some point you want to change something, you can reach there and you can change things because it's your files to change. And I I I personally my 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 theory is is that a lot of these things have uh, very explicit design decisions by um, Chris McCord and, and Jose because they used to work a lot of with Ruby and then maybe had experience with like, okay, now it becomes very difficult to, to do something which is outside of a beaten path. So we mm -hmm. want to learn from that and do it differently. But yeah, we, they're not here. We, we can't ask them. But that's my, my personal theory that they that learned a few things how they might not have worked as nicely and very deliberately made design decisions yeah. to avoid that. Yep. Nice part about Elixir is, for the most part, even though you may write your code very not very nicely, it's still relatively quick, which is uh, the good part. Yeah, like it, it, um, it, I feel like it strikes a balance between this, between helping you write code quickly, but still trying to be explicit and expressive enough to help other people who come later to understand what's going on, even if they are not familiar mm -hmm. with, with the um, with the conventions. 
Because like at the very least, there's like a use something at the top, right? That's like at the very least, there's that. So you yeah. can go there and figure out what does this do. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's an, actually an interesting uh, article I can share with like from one of the Rust core contributors where he talks about like explicit and implicit code. And he basically makes this argument that to understand a certain piece of code, depending on like the language you work in, there's a certain amount of information you have to keep in your head to understand what it does. Mm -hmm. And more implicit code and more code where people say it's magic tends to have more information you need to keep in your head to understand what it does, where more explicit code basically reduces this, this amount of information necessary. And he says, like, but there's a sweet spot. Like, you don't want to type out everything because then at the end of the day, probably we end up at this Gensover uh, uh, example you mentioned earlier, Evan, of like having to type out all this stuff to get a Gensover working at Erlang. So, yeah, I can, I can share it. It's a very interesting read. Yep. Cool. Well, then are you picking on me again about Rust? <laughs> it's a, I really like that article. But what's more by coincidence that it's from Rust. Cool. Well, we're getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover here? To summarize, I would say like uh, if, if you can grab a Elixir developer with experience and don't let go if you want to learn Elixir. <laughs> you guys are way too far away. <laughs> I mean, I think the the most important part is like start small. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are the same is that it's best if you can pick something to aim your learning goal at, right? You don't try mm -hmm. to learn everything and say, okay, now I know it all. Just like build something with it, be focused on something. And I think the easiest path they really get used to it is like, let's learn a language, let's learn a syntax. The easiest thing to do is coming from Rails, your background, do some Phoenix stuff. Right. Once you want to do something more complicated, then start digging into that specific area, right? You're talking about like um, sending like uh, proxying data. I don't know exactly how to do that, but I know you can do it. And I know that there's a way that you can actually stream stuff from S3, right? If you're talking about streaming your specific files. Right. And, you know, play around. Like, remember we had the guest, I think that was our last guest, uh, where he was just like, I don't have a, I don't have anything. I didn't, I don't, I didn't learn anything. He's like, I learned things, but I didn't really have a meaning to learn anything or whatever. I just tried right. to see what happened. I think that's a fantastic way to really dig into it. And then when you're saying, okay, why is it that this is better than this one? That is what the more interesting part gets into. And I also think that, like like I said before, like if you really want to dig more into it, you're better off just going to the to the father, right? Erlang to really pick into like why is this thing like this? Right. Like I'm trying to get more into Rust as you guys, everybody in the world knows already. And so actually I went ahead and I asked uh, on Reddit saying, like, you know, how can I get more into systems programming? Is, is there any books and stuff? And I think the best resources out there are probably C. Although it's not the same, but at least you have the ideas like you know, how to do certain things. And I think the same for Elixir is that if you want to get deep down into how do these primitives make such fault tolerant systems and you really want to get into all that kind of stuff, look at Erlang. Uh, there's just a, a ton of material out there. Yeah, that's that's kind of my end. Makes sense. All right, good deal. Well, I'm going to push this over to Picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. 
Sasha, do you want to start us off with picks? I one pick which now popped into my head while we talked about all of this. And because we talked a lot about like how to learn these like more implicit things and that having colleagues who tell you um, is very super helpful. And there's actually a platform you might want to look into which can help at least a lot uh, with some of that. It's um, exorcism.org because mm-hmm. like the interesting thing what they do, they have that's a lot of coding ex- training platforms. They have like ex- uh, exercises you do for a lot of languages. But like this, the selling point is basically that they also have a mentoring program. So you can basically, when you do exercise, you can ask for feedback from a mentor. And people who mentor are usually people who have a lot of experience with that language and just volunteer their free time because they want to teach newcomers. And then you get exactly this kind of input where like people who have a lot of experience tell you, hey, yeah, great, you did, you did it, it works, but maybe you cont- might, might want to look into this module over there because it can help you simplify things. So you pick up a lot of the conventions and a lot of other powerful tools which the platform gives you by getting this mentoring. So if you don't have anybody knowledgeable and experienced to help you with learning that, then exorcism might be the next best thing. So yeah, that's my pick for the week. Cool. How about you, Alan? Yeah, my pick is um, this framework called Tokio, or sorry, it's actually called Tokyo. So like I said, I had a Rust pick for you guys. Um, The reason I picked this one is because uh, within Rust, there's no like asynchronous framework when you want to run asynchronous code, right? You want to be able to do lots of things at the same time. You pretty much have to roll your own or use one of these kind of like, uh, like they call them async runtimes. And Tokyo is one of those async runtimes. And the reason I think this is a, like basically this is the framework to use, the async runtime to use. And what I do like about it is that if you're coming from Elixir or Lang, it's very similar. You can spin up tasks and you can spin up all kinds of asynchronous processes. And it, they also have this idea of schedulers. So I like really, it's, I would say it's basically the beam for, uh, Rust. So I think it's pretty cool. Um, you should definitely check it out if you want to get into Rust and you're coming from uh, Erlang or Elixir. Cool. I'm going to throw out some picks. First of all, the podcast bootcamp, podcastbootcamp.io. I also, I think that's self-explanatory, so I'm not going to expound. We're moving everything over to topendevs.com. So if you want to see what we're working on over there, go check it out. I have some other stuff in the works, but I don't know if I want to announce it until it's like ready to launch. So um, anyway, we'll see how it all lands. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make more announcements there as we go. I'm really tempted to put together like a Kickstarter for like a self-hosted uh, podcast analytics engine or something <laughs> and then just go build it in Elixir. I think that would be fun. But uh, yeah, if I do that, I'll, I'll let people know where that's at. As far as other things that I am consuming, so I don't know if I picked this last week or not, so I'm just going to shout it out. Um, I just finished Masters of Doom, which is a book about the origins of Doom and Quake. It talks about all the guys that were involved in that. It's a really good book. Uh, really enjoyed the work, the walkthroughs on that. Currently, I'm reading a book called The Road Back to You, and it's about the Enneagram, which is kind of personality stuff. The guy that wrote it is a Christian pastor and he, he kind of so there's a lot of christian context to it but it's really really interesting some friends of mine pointed it out and and so it talks about these nine different uh, personality types and how they kind of manifest in people and things like that uh, i don't know how much scientific backing there is to this but with personality and stuff i think most of the scientific stuff is mostly observation and then people try and extract meaning from it anyway that said 
I, I did find it pretty interesting from the standpoint of both, okay, what types of people am I working with? T- what types of people do I have in my family? And things like that. And I think it's going to be a help with some of the relationships that I have with people. And so I'm really enjoying that book. I usually pick books. I just realized, I think that's all I've got this week. So I'm, uh, I'll just stop there. All right, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for your help, guys. I'll let you know if I wind up transitioning to some other job. And until next time, folks, Max yeah. out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.